have a favorite book of the Bible, wonder what your answer would be. For some of you, you might just say, well, I like it all. It's all God's word. And that would give you an A on a test. But, you know, what exactly is your favorite? And uh, some people over the years have told me things that I really like the book of James. Like it is so practical as I read it. It's just a straightforward. This is what you need to do if you are living the way that God wants you to. And so they'll be like, I really enjoy that book. Or maybe it's one of the letters such as Philippians. As I read it, there's just so much joy that I read in the scriptures there. Those four little chapters, but the joy that comes from God and through Paul, you know, towards the people. That's just something that excites me. I've heard some people say, I really love Revelation. Like it is just unique, not like any of the other books. And I really, really appreciate that one. Sometimes I hear, I like Genesis, like it's the beginning of everything. And so I kind of like just seeing where everything started and what that means for us. Sometimes I'll hear the word or the, the title Proverbs. I love reading Proverbs and just these short bits of wisdom of how I need to live life. And there's 31 of them, so I can be reading one chapter a day. And just it, it, it just ties in with so many things that happen throughout my day. Or maybe you like one of the Gospels. Like, I love seeing Jesus. You know, I love everything else. But man, when Jesus is here and watching his heart for the people, and this is what God's love looks like with our eyes, man, that is just amazing. Or maybe you have a different book. But then I could ask the question, hey, do you have a book that's maybe not your favorite? You know, and so answer is Leviticus. Like, man, there's a whole bunch of laws in there and uh, sacrifices, and that is just not my cup of tea. So I've heard people say that. Some people will tell me, I am not a fan of the book of Job. Like, here's all this suffering going on, and you read, and, and not all of it is even from God. You see these different bits of wisdom from friends that are just wrong, and God has to correct them later on. But like, even at the end, God doesn't give Job an answer to everything. And so like, I struggle with that book. Maybe that's your answer of one that's not your favorite. Or I've heard of Revelation, because yeah, it's unique, but there's a lot that I read, and I don't fully understand it. Or sometimes people tell me, man, some of the prophets... Like even as I read them, I'm not sure what exactly is meant for me that I can take, what is just more the history, and I see how God worked. And so sometimes st struggling through those things can be kind of difficult. And one of the books that I have heard, which falls into each one of those categories, is the book of Psalms. That some people really, really love what is in the book of Psalms, and other people would tell you, I kind of struggle with those. Like, those are not the ones that I just want to turn to. And yet, they're obviously important in the fact of if you ever had one of those New Testament Bibles attached to it, it was usually the book of Psalms as well. And so as we're going through this book of Psalms, I'm like, man, let me go back to my Old Testament history class in college and just look at what kind of notes I wrote about the book of Psalms. And so here's just some things to let you know um, that I remember from college. And so the first is that it is 150 chapters, and so it's 150 different statements of praise. And within the book of Psalms, it's actually divided into five, they're called books. You'll see book one, book two, book three, book four, book five. And those five actually carry similar themes as the first five books of the Bible. Like it almost matches up to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The book of Psalms functions like a hymnal. And so the early church, they used them for corporate worship. Um, it also functioned kind of like a prayer journal. Like you got to see the thoughts and the feelings of the writers. And the Psalms, they are completely honest. Like you get to see that there is no sugarcoating anything. And so the feelings and the thoughts that people share, like they're raw and they're completely real. The book of Psalms is also the most quoted book 
in the New Testament. So of the Old Testament books, 116 times it's quoted out of a total of 238. Also, the book of Psalms, about half of them are written by David. And also there's different types of psalms. Maybe you didn't know this, but some of them give praise. Some of the psalms give thanks. Some cry out in pain. Some confess sin. There are many that speak of God's work throughout history. Some boldly declare that God is the one who reigns. Some were used for annual feasts. Some spoke of King David or even the coming Messiah one day. Some are called imprecatory psalms which are ones that call God, hey, will you bring down curses or judgment upon people? And if I'm being completely honest with you, Psalms is not my first go-to book. Like if I get a choice of what I'm going to read, I'd probably choose a gospel or one of the letters or even some of the history from the Old Testament that just show kind of that foundation, but, but not Psalms. And yet a few years ago, I read a book about the Old Testament. It's by a guy named Philip Yancey, and the title of the book was called The Bible Jesus Read. And so it showed the importance of the Old Testament, and then it even looked at some specific books of the Bible, such as Job or Deuteronomy or Ecclesiastes, kind of clumped the prophets together and showed you the importance of those. And then the book of Psalms. And so I want you just to be able to listen to some of the pieces of what he wrote in that chapter about Psalms. And so he even said, for years, I avoided the book of Psalms. I could never get excited about reading the Psalms. I felt confused by reading the Psalms. Like individual Psalms, they seem to almost contradict one another. Reading so many in a row, sometimes they began to kind of be boring or even sound repetitious. He said, eventually, I was able to comprehend them, but I still didn't have just a sense of enjoyment. But he later writes, but I learned to appreciate the poetic craftsmanship involved in the Hebrew parallelism or the acrostic form. I learned to differentiate the different types of psalms, you know, the imprecatory psalms, the psalms of lament, the psalms of ascent, the royal psalms, or even the thank-offering psalms. He said, I learned that I must read them as an over-the-shoulder reader, since the intended audience was not other people, but it's God. And so unlike other books, the Psalms are not pronouncements from on high, delivering with full apostolic authority on matters of faith and practice, but instead they're personal prayers in forms of poetry written by a variety of people like peasants and kings and professional musicians and rank amateurs, and they were often in wildly fluctuating moods. Now, do not misunderstand me. I do not believe the Psalms to be any less valuable or even less inspired than Paul's letters or the Gospels. But the Psalms, they do use an inherently different approach, not so much representing God to the people as the people representing themselves to God. And Yancey even used this illustration. He said, you know what? My father, he passed away when I was 13 months old. It's like I have no memories of him. Now, sure, there are some mementos that I have from his life, as well as some pictures of when my dad was holding me as a baby. He said, but really, I have some of his books. They're still in my possession. And when I open those books, like I see where my father underlined important thoughts or even wrote in the margins different things that, that was just going on with him as he wrote, wrote, read those things. But his father, he never had like his son in mind as he was writing those things. And yet, so many years later, as Yancey reads the underlined things and the things in the margins, 
he can be moved and challenged and convicted in his own relationship with God as he reads those words. And the Psalms, they are, they're way more formal than just dad's notes in a margin, but reading them can cause us to feel and to think what the original writers were going through. And they can help us understand those life circumstances, but even more, how God is present no matter what is going on. And Yancey wrote later, I, I come to the Psalms not primarily as a student who wants to acquire knowledge, but rather as a fellow pilgrim who wants to acquire this relationship with God. He said, more than any other book in the Bible, Psalms reveals what a heartfelt, soul-starved, single-minded relationship with God looks like. It contains the anguished journals of people who want to believe in a loving and gracious and faithful God while the world sometimes falls apart around them. And the difference between the individual psalms can often bring this mixture of realism and hope. And God still reigns. He has not abandoned us, no matter how it may appear. Yancey says the psalms, they offer this helpful pattern of expressing even rage that sometimes the church will try to repress. And so you see doubt and paranoia. You see giddiness and delight or meanness and hatred. You see joy and praise, and vengefulness, and betrayal, they are all in the book of Psalms. And from the Psalms, Yancey says, I have learned that I can rightfully bring to God whatever I feel about Him in the moment. And again, Yancey wrote, every Psalm may not apply to my current spiritual state, but listen to the reality of the Psalms. They supply me with the words that I need, sometimes to say to God what I need to say. Words that celebrate his reality, that the heavens declare the glory of God. Or words that confess his action in my life, that you have turned my mourning into dancing. Or words that express my utter dependence upon him. In my mother's womb, you formed me. Or words that convey, convey my hope for intimacy, that one thing I desire, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Psalms, they tutor my soul in my love for God. And the Psalms, they wonderfully solve this problem in a praise-deficient culture by providing the necessary words. In fact, he says Dietrich Bonhoeffer suggests that the Psalms are God's language course. Like just as infants learn the mother tongue from their parents, Christians can learn the language of prayer through the book of Psalms. And even in speaking about the lamenting psalms, the ones where I'm crying out to God and saying, this is hard, he points out that the person that you often speak your laments to is someone that you deeply trust, someone that you wildly trust. And so in this case, that person is God. And we get to read of what a king prays after he committed adultery and murder, or what he, he prayed after escaping an assassination attempt or what he wrote after losing a crucial battle, or even after dedicating a new capital directly to God. But interesting enough, sometimes you'll read a specific chapter and you'll think, oh, this is what's going on. And yet sometimes the inner person does not match up with the outer circumstances. Like things can be crumbling in all around you, and yet I can still give praise to God. And finally, Yancey even talked about those cursing psalms that I talked about a while ago. And he said, well, maybe those are just simply like righteous anger in the moment. 
Or maybe they're examples of spiritual immaturity. I'm not sure what to do with these feelings that I have. But he concluded that maybe they're best understood as prayers. Like by placing my unattended rage before God, we we place both our unjust enemy, whoever that is, and we place our own vengeful self face to face with God, with this God who loves to do justice. And so hidden in the dark chambers of our heart and nourished by systems of darkness, hate can grow and it sees to invest, uh, to infest everything it can with its hellish will to be able to exclude things. And yet in the light of the justice of God, hate recedes and the seed is planted for that miracle of forgiveness. And so Yancey says, I see the cursing Psalms as an important model for how to deal with evil and injustice, that I should not try to suppress my reaction of horror, outrage at this evil, but I also shouldn't be the one just to try to take justice into my own hands. And rather, I would deliver those feelings to God. Man, those are stripped stripped bare feelings. And I understand that he is big enough to handle whatever I give to him. You know what? There's so much in that chapter that I appreciated. And I'd tell you that it's still not my favorite place to go to to read first, and yet I see the value of them much more than I did at one time. And sometimes reading them, I too can feel the emotions of the authors as they strive to live this life for God in a world that definitely doesn't prioritize it. And so Psalms, Rejoicing in God's character. And that's the series that we're going to be doing during these summer weeks and through these over-the-shoulder readings that help us to navigate this life that we're living. We get to see who God is. And a few years ago, as I was reading the book of Psalms, I gave myself a challenge. I just wanted to underline every single thing that it said about who God was or what he did. And then I even preached a sermon based on that topic. And so here's the title slide of just some of the names of God or what he does. And I can guarantee that those aren't all the things, all the descriptions of who God is, but they're some of the ones that were repeated again and again and again, who people called out to as God. And so throughout the summer, we're looking at some of the individual psalms, not all 150 of them. Like We'd probably have to throw a few more weeks in the summer, and some of you would be okay with that, but some of you maybe not. But as we're looking at every single one of these, like maybe it's going to hit where you are right now in your life. Or maybe there will be words in there that are like, man, that was me a year ago or five years ago when I was in that circumstance. Or maybe there will even be words that are written that you'll be like, yep, someday this may be my cry out to God. And so maybe in the moment, you're feeling like God is distant. and You're feeling like, God, are you even listening to me? Or maybe you're on the other side and you just have so much joy that you cannot keep it in. Or maybe back over here, you see that there are people who have hurt you and like it just seems like they're getting away with everything right now. Maybe you're back on this other side and you just long for heaven, like you look forward to that day that we get to be with him again. Or maybe you're over here again and just feeling the weight of your sin, like every day you're carrying it and it just feels like it's got a hold on you. Or maybe you're on this other side again yet and you're extremely thankful for how God came through in a specific moment and you can't give him enough thanks for what he's done. Or maybe you're back over here again and you simply want to raise your voice and yell every single thing that you are thinking and feeling at him. Or maybe you're over here and you are completely 
at peace in the moment. And you simply want to savor this time and spend some moments with him. You see, all of these are expressed multiple times in a variety of ways throughout the book of Psalms. And while we look at each one of them, there are going to be attributes that we get to learn about who God is, which can cause us to rejoice. In fact, Philippians 4, 4 says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And so no matter the circumstances, we can rejoice and trust in him. And so this being our first week as we're opening up the book of Psalms, the question could be, well, where do we start? Well, the chapter is not going to be our main one, but if you have your Bibles, turn to chapter 119. I just want to tell you some things about this one. Psalm chapter 119, it is the longest book in the Bible. And so if anyone ever asks you that, you know you're on Jeopardy, you can get this question right because it's Psalm 119. There are 176 verses. And this entire chapter is about the law of God or his word, his precepts, his decrees. There's a whole bunch of different words used all about the law of God. And some of those verses are pretty famous. Like for instance, chapter 119.9, maybe you've heard this says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. Or two verses later in chapter 119, verse 11, it says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Maybe you've heard that one. Or maybe that you've heard this one in verse 105. So it's quite a few verses later, but 105, it simply says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. There's 173 more verses in that chapter that all talk about the preciousness of following God's law. And I'll tell you, it's an amazing chapter to read in English, but man, if you could read Hebrew, it would even be that much more impressive. Now, why? Well, let me tell you this. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Guess how many sections Psalm 119 is divided into? 22. There you go. So you got that answer correct. All right. Now, each of those sections has eight verses under it. And if you have your Bible open there, you'll see right at the beginning of verse one, it says Aleph. Or right before verse nine, it says Bet. Or right before verse 17, it says Gimel. Those are the Hebrew letters. And what is interesting is those eight verses underneath it, underneath that letter, all of those verses start with a word that begins with that letter. So if we were in English, the first eight verses would start with a word that began with a letter A. The next eight verses would start with a word that began with a letter B and all the way till the end. And so whoever wrote this acrostic poem, this poetic piece of literature, one that speaks truth, spent a lot of time thinking about the word of God and how important it is. And so maybe this is a chapter that you should read this week just to see again what God's law can mean to us. But as we're talking about his law, that's actually the foundation for the chapter that I want to look at today. And so, if you still have your Bibles open, go to chapter 1. That's a good place to start, chapter 1, in the beginning. And so, Psalm chapter 1 is what we're going to look at. And again, some of these verses may be ones that you've heard before. I give you permission to underline anything that screams out to you or write in your margins so that maybe one day, even you're going back and looking and going, ah, that is a reminder of what God taught me on that day. Psalms chapter 1, and even as you look, you can see it say, you know, book 1 above it. Again, it's divided into five books. And so here are the first three verses of Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. 
He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. So we read here, and I need to let you know, in the book of Psalms, you're going to read about the godly. You're going to read about the unrighteous quite a few times. There is no, well, this person's kind of good, or, well, this person's a little bit bad. Like, people choose to follow God with their lives, or they don't. And no matter how good we think we are, we think someone else might be, our own righteousness is not good enough. And so it says, blessed is this type of person. Blessed that they get to feel feelings of happiness or they're the one who gets to experiencing certain blessings. Well, who exactly is the one who is blessed? Those who are not involved in evil. And it talks about those who are wicked. Man, that word wicked, just the general condition of the world. Just see wickedness around us. But then it even goes that step further, this idea of the sinner, those who participate in that wickedness. And then it even takes it a step farther. The mocker, the one who is laughing at the things that are right, going, why do you even care about that? And even as you look at those three verses, especially at the beginning, you see this increase of closeness to evil. Like I start out walking alongside. You know, maybe I'm having a conversation with those who are involved in this, but then it becomes to standing, that I'm starting to feel comfortable, you know, and I'm amongst them, you know, having those conversations. To the point then it even says this idea of sitting. I am staying amongst them. I am even being associated with them. And so God says, do not be part of this crowd. Blessed is the one who is not part of this crowd. You choose to live your life in these lanes. It does not bring blessings. But instead, who is the one that's blessed? Again, the one who delights in God's laws. The one who meditates on it. Like He thinks about these things. He applies it. He lives his life by it. I mean, our verses in one Psalm, or Psalm 119 that we read a while ago, it says it lights our path or it keeps our hearts pure. It protects us from sin. You see, it's not just enough to avoid evil. Like that's not where God just wants us to draw the line. Instead, we should seek his ways. We should desire to love him and please him with every moment that we have. And if you do that, then you're like a tree. You're like a tree that is fruitful, a tree that is healthy, a tree that is abundant, one that is planted. It is established with deep roots that no wind can blow it over. And next to water that it can get the nutrients that it needs And can you picture that kind of tree? Like just taking a step back. Man, you see the beautiful leaves. You see maybe the good thick trunk or the branches that are strong. Maybe so strong that it even has this tire swing on it. Or maybe so many leaves that, man, the shade underneath it is amazing. Like it is a good tree. It's opposite of one that maybe you see that you can tell is kind of sickly. Or it's starting to dry up. Or there is no leaves and there are no fruit and it is dying. And no one wants that kind of tree in their yard. Similarly, no one wants to be that kind of tree. And the one that follows the ways of God, they'll prosper because we are fulfilling the purpose with which we are created to do. Now, the author keeps going here in verses five and six. He says, not so the wicked. So we're talking about blessings, but he says, not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. And so you have this contrast, again, of living out choices and the consequences that come with it. He says they're like chaff, the the, the unedible parts of the grain that would have been separated 
And so then after people used the part that they need, it was just left on the ground and it was light enough that when the winds came, it simply blew them away. The wicked, they have no establishment. They have no roots within what is really important. Or maybe with whom is really important. And so they're easily blown away. They're pushed out of the scene and they're going to be made to, be, to disappear from God's presence. In fact, this language is even what John the Baptist uses. He comes preparing the way for Jesus. Man, there is a clear difference between the two paths here of verses 1 through 3 and verses 4 and 5. This idea of being rooted and flourishing or one that is simply blown away. In fact, in verse 5, it said the word therefore. And anytime the word therefore is there, you're like, hey, what's the word therefore, therefore? Why is it connecting? Because they're like chaff and blown away, it says that they will not have the pleasure of what is in store for the righteous. Which leads us to verse 6. And it says, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You know, God is the one who blesses. And he especially blesses those who follow after him. And he watches over your way. And I think back to when I was little and the confidence that I had when I needed to try something new or go somewhere new when someone was with me, when it wasn't just me, myself, and I. And I could try things because someone bigger was with me and they had my back. Or even if they were more experienced, they could say, ah, stop, don't go this far because this is something that will not work. They could save me some from some really big mistakes. And as a child of God, you are not alone. He is with you. And as we read, God is also the judge. And sometimes there are moments where maybe you're sitting there, you're standing there, and you're wondering, God, why are you letting this happen right now? Like, I don't get it at all. Or even, why are you letting these people prosper? Like, they're not serving you. I want you to understand that God is the judge. And again, I know, even if you're feeling, God, but right now would be a great time to bring some of that justice. Like, it's okay to have those kind of feelings. We're talking real life here, and there's maybe someone that has hurt you or someone that you care about. But again, just remember that God is the perfect judge, and He will bring about justice. And even thinking about that, even if complete judgment for those who walk in wickedness doesn't happen until some way, some time down in the future, like, I still don't want to walk down that path because that path often brings destruction, even right now. It often brings hardships that are unnecessary. And I would rather live on the path that I know ends in God's blessings, but also has them each step of the way. And so God is the judge, and He is the author of everything good. And as we plant ourselves firmly in His truth, in His law, in His word, His character, it becomes more and more real to us. And in His word, we read of how good His laws are, but we also read of the freedom and the grace that comes, all because of Jesus. Because Jesus took our place for every single unrighteous thing we've ever done and we ever will do. In fact, even the righteous, as Psalms calls them in, the book, in his book, they're not perfect. Romans says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. On our own, we cannot stand before God trying to argue why we deserve to get into heaven. But I believe when we get one glimpse of God, we won't even try. 
I think people will see how great and perfect he is and realize that we are sinners. And yet, because of Jesus, because he died for us, God, who is the righteous judge, will welcome us into his heavenly kingdom. That means with every breath that we have, we should sing or shout or speak the praise of God, that his name is the name above every other name, that we need to build our lives completely upon him, that we should immerse ourselves in his perfect word. Let us be planted in this foundation that can never be shaken. No matter the circumstances of life, no matter how we feel at any specific moment in time, we can rejoice in the character of God. And so we're going to sing praise to his name. We're going to lift his name high. And if you want prayer for anything as we're talking just through these things, then I'd invite you as we're singing to go to one of these decision points. If you're listening here and you're like, ah, I have been caught up in that group of the wicked and I don't want to be that way anymore. I want my life to be following after Jesus. Then I encourage you to go to one of the decision points as well. Even if there's just questions, what does this life look like of following after him? Then I'd encourage you to go get some answers but we want to continue to lift this God who allows us to live a life that is completely planted in him on this firm foundation because he is the only one who is worthy. Let's stand and sing to him.